Uh, my wife and I got married uh, in, or we graduated college in May. We got married a couple weeks later in June. In August, I was in pilot training, and she came with me. And it was, it was, a, it was a shock to the system. Marriage is shock, you know, to adjust to, but to be newly married and pilot training required uh, a lot of learning on our parts. In some ways, it was lonely um, because there's certain expectations in that culture that um, I thought I was used to. I thought college life prepared me for it, but it didn't. Uh, I was, there were higher expectations um, as far as lifestyle behavior. And um, what helped a lot for us was we had a great Sunday school class. We were a part of a church, uh, First Baptist Columbus, Mississippi, and they had a great uh, young couples class, and many people in that class were in the same stage of life that we were in, and that made it so much easier because we had a group who understood how we felt, and they felt the same way, and we kept one another strong, and we kind of came around one another during that time, and that was very helpful. We also had the distinct uh, blessing, a very unusual blessing, of having 13, 11 to 13 married couples in our, my pilot training class, which was almost unheard of at the time. It was an unusual in a pilot training class to have maybe uh, uh, four married couples and 20-some bachelors with their hair on fire. And you can imagine how the culture feels that way. But we had 13 married couples, and some of them had babies. And that helped us kind of dial the whole thing back a little bit, made it easier for us to manage. And, and manage we did. And, and then we moved to Tucson, which was a little bit more of a fighter environment. And it was a little more serious, and we were broke. We, uh, you can do the math here. The dollars aren't, aren't that old. Uh, we had a furnished, fully furnished uh, one-bedroom apartment um, that accepted pets for $400 a month. So it was not that nice. But we, you know, we, what we did have is you know, the squadron was a little more, in our, in our world, we say push it up. It was more push it up, more hair on fire. Um, but we had another great church group, El Camino Baptist Church on Speedway in Tucson. They ministered to us and... Uh, there were a few families in there that understood what we were going through, and that was helpful. And then we moved to Alaska, and it was like the floor dropped out of, of our lives. Uh, we got there at the end of the summer. Um, so we spent our first winter in Alaska. I was part of a fighter squadron. I think I was, I think I can confidently say I was the only Christian in the squadron of about 40 guys, and I felt it every single day. Uh, it was the loneliest year of my life. Um, my wife was pregnant with our first in the winter of Alaska. And those are just lonely times. It's lonely times when there, I mean, the behavioral gradient was so extreme that we really couldn't make good friends. We were never enough of what anybody wanted us to be. Um, we were on, even when you tried to make things, do things with the gr- greatest level of grace and aplomb, it fell flat. In, in such an aggressive world, it was, uh, it, imagine a fraternity of lumberjacks 
it's just kind of how it felt. And it, at times it was, it was brutal. And it was brutal for us both. And our church group, we, we, we had a good church, but the church group didn't really have people in our circle that, that were in our stage of life. They were what you would call sourdoughs. They were, many of them were native Alaskans or Alaskans, permanent Alaskans. And their outlook on life is different. Or they were in other sections of the Air Force, which is so different. My building, my building had a full-up bar with free alcohol and a light that would come on at 4 o'clock. As soon as the last jet lands, the light goes on and the tap rolls. And you were, the expectation was you're supposed to stay and drink until about 8 o'clock because it's just your wife. That was, that was the culture. And... Uh, and we had no one in our church who could identify with that. And that was the longest winter of my life, our lives, I think. You know, you wonder, sometimes you're, faith, you're trying to be faithful, right? I mean, I was faithful amidst hundreds of failures. But you're trying to be faithful, and you believe the Lord, and you love the Lord, and, but you just feel like he's not there. Or you feel hollow inside. Well, then the summer came, and people in Alaska move in the summer. And when the summer came, new people showed up, and old people moved away. Praise the Lord. And, uh, uh, you know, the squadron turned over a little bit in some strategic ways for the kingdom. And out went a couple of people, and in came a couple who were Christians. Not just one or two. I think we got four or five Christians that summer. We were a force to be reckoned with in the squadron. Like we started to be able to kind of influence just, just lifestyle. Like make things a little more family friendly from time to time. And, and, and not only that, it, these Christians who were coming to church, they needed a, the, the squadron, they needed a church to go to. And well, I had a church they could go to. So they would come with us to church and we ended up, they were part of our Sunday school class. And before long, I was teaching adult Sunday school. And it's out of that entire winter into the summer that my call to ministry came. It was that year. And just the Lord in the most tender way that I can even possibly begin to explain just kind of showed his love for us in the way he showed up so gently with friends and with people who bolstered our faith. And, you know, it was as though the Lord said, I knew, I know you had a cold winter and I know you felt like I wasn't around much, but look who I brought with me. And I believe that the Lord does that for us, not just for me, but I believe that's who God is. And I want to encourage you this morning. This morning's message is a message of encouragement. That this is the way that God is. When, it feels, when you feel alone or you feel distant or you just feel cool on God, I want you to know he's there and he has, is full of tender mercy. And we're going to see it in the word today. We're going to observe it. There's a verse in today's section. The verse is a scene where the Lord comes to Paul in the middle of the night and says, Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do what you're doing. I'm blessing you. And if, if we're going to approach that verse very slowly today because if, if you just read it as it stands right now, it feels out of place. It doesn't connect. It's not fused into the life of Paul. It's my hope this morning that when we're done that Paul will be more of a man in your mind. You'll understand the manness or the humanness of Paul and that the greatness of God will be before you in the way that he has his his tender mercies for us. I'm going to open us up with prayer, and um, we're going to allow just the 40th Psalm to follow us today. The, the 40th Psalm was written 
for just a day like this. So will you pray with me, please? For the director of music of David, Psalm. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you've planned for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. Lord, guide us as we study your word. Father, I pray over over the person or people here this morning who may be entering into a lonely season, may be coming out of a lonely season, they just may be in the winter of their life with you, Lord. I pray, come to them with your tender mercies and show them your love. Amen. The 18th verse. By the way, there will be numerous scriptures on the screen behind me this morning. Most, most of them I won't be reading. They're just, I want to keep you up scripturally with some of the things that I say because we've covered a lot of scripture over the weeks. Um, but let's look at the first verse of chapter 18. We'll spend uh, a good bit of time here. This is what is written. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. I find it interesting that Paul left Athens. It should be curious to us that he left Athens. Because if if we're not mistaken, if you look at the 16th verse of chapter 17, he was supposed to be waiting in Athens for somebody. Do you see this? While Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Who's he waiting for? He's waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens. He was told to wait for them in Athens. Look at at the 15th verse as he's fleeing Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Presumably in Athens. It was in Athens that Paul was waiting. Remember, Paul had no kind of ministry intent when he was in Athens. He wasn't going there because it was on the map of ministry. While he was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, his heart became very distressed because he looked around and saw all the idols. That's why he opened his mouth and began to proclaim the word of God in Athens. But he was in Athens because he was waiting for Silas and Timothy, but now he has left Athens without Silas and Timothy. Why did he do that? I think there's a combination of two reasons. For one, I think Athens is a dark place, and I think it was oppressive for Paul. Just the text makes you, the text all the way through his experience in Athens, from, for they were very religious people. I see that you were very religious people, too. All they ever wanted to do all the time was talk about the next new thought, to some people sneered at him, to after that Paul left the Areopagus and departed. The whole mood of that occasion through Athens gives you the feeling that his experience there was, was hard, 
was oppressive, was not, not blessed, was why am I here? So I wonder if that's the first thing, if, if he just felt in some ways herded out of Athens. You know, in some ways, places like Thessalonica and Berea, there's a, there, at least they're spiritually alive enough to push Paul out of Athens. It's totally different if nobody even cares if you're proclaiming him there. And I wonder if that's part of what Paul's experiencing. But I also think part of what Paul's experiencing is this combination of Silas and Timothy have not come. How long are you going to wait? He fled. He was smuggled out of Berea on a boat to escape the accusations of treason and, and civil unrest. Silas and Timothy remain behind in an oppressive, persecuting area. With the words, we'll join you, go, we'll join you. How long are you going to wait in Athens? Imagine that. Imagine you're a missionary or something. How long are you going to wait? When are you going to start in your mind going, well, maybe they're not coming. Maybe they didn't get out of Berea. Maybe they're in prison in Thessalonica. Maybe they're dead. Maybe they're under persecution. Maybe they've abandoned me. I mean, think of yourself. If you were in Paul's position, would not these kinds of things be going through your mind? At some point, you have to get up and go live. I think that's what Paul did. I think Paul, it's a combination of Athens was not his town, and Silas and Timothy hadn't come. So he got up and he said, I'll go to Corinth. Corinth was on the list. It was the district capital. I'll go there. Maybe I'll start my ministry there. And so Paul went. Paul departed. He went to Corinth. And he began his ministry by himself. Which, if you think Athens is dark, welcome to Corinth. Corinth is possibly the darkest city in the Greco-Roman world. It was absolutely the sewage, the moral sewage of the Mediterranean. If you wanted to call somebody like a filthy... If you wanted to like declare that they were just filthy, you would call them Corinthian. That was the word you would use. They had it in Corinth, you know, in Athens they have uh, the temple to Athens. In Corinth they have the temple to Aphrodite. Do the math on what that city was like. They'd say, they'd say thousands of prostitutes were in the streets at night. Temple prostitutes would go down and, and work. That's the world. So in one sense... Paul's oppressed in the city of Athens, but he turns and he steps right into this dark, just morally filthy environment of Corinth. He's all alone. And you just need to imagine what's going through his head. Let's step back for a second to, to, make, this, to make this all work. Let's, let's back up to when he was in Troas a couple months ago. He was in Troas. You remember this? This is when he was trying to go places in Turkey, but the Lord prevented him or the Holy Spirit blocked his way. He finds himself in Troas, and he has this vision in the night. And in this vision, there's a man from Macedonia saying, come over here, come over here. Now, if you think of that day, when they get up and he talks about it with his companions and they deliberate and they say, let's go to Philippi. Let's go to Macedonia and share the gospel. That was a bright day in the ministry. He set off on ministry. It was Paul and Silas. By the time he was in Troas, it was Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. That's where in the text Luke enters in. That's when he goes from they did this to we did this. 
So it's not just a team of two, it's a team of four, and they're bolstered by the Holy Spirit's vision. They have all this encouragement. Finally, the Lord has shown us where we're going to be ministering. We're going to be ministering in Macedonia. And by the way, look, look, he's equipped me. He's equipped me with this marvelous team. I have Luke and Timothy and Silas and myself. This is certainly what God wants. And they get on the boat and they head off just like the Fellowship of the Ring leave indoor or whatever, you know, like... It's this, if there was music right now, it would be in the major key. Dun, da, da, da. You know, horses cl- clopping and, and people smiling and cheers and palm trees. It was that kind of mood leaving Troas. We're going on mission. We're carrying the gospel overseas. Praise the Lord. They get to Philippi. They share the gospel with a woman at the river. She converts. Her name is Lydia. Things are going great. People are coming to the Lord. This is exactly where we're supposed to be. The vision said, come to Macedonia. We have all this access. A a young slave girl has a a demonic spirit in her. Paul casts the spirit out, and it's like the needle falls off the record. He's clapped in irons. It says that he is severely beaten and flogged. He and Silas are arrested. They are severely beaten and flogged, thrown into prison. When they're released from prison, it's please leave and don't come back. How does that reconcile? I happen to believe very strongly that that Luke remained behind in Philippi. And so as Paul and Silas and Timothy are leaving Philippi, they're leaving both Macedonia and Luke behind. Isn't that where God called them to, to Macedonia? They go to Thessalonica, which is in the next province over, and they're in Thessalonica. Paul has the chance to speak the gospel three times, three Sabbaths, he reasons with the people. He's barely getting any kind of vestige of a faith community alive. And what happens? The accusations fly. Treason, commotion, corruption, he's out. They kick him out. They make him post bond that he won't come back. So he's out there now. And in doing that, by the way, more is lost than we can imagine from Acts because we know in other texts of the Bible that when he left Thessalonica, so also was he separated from his financial help. Philippi had picked up financially supporting him. And when he left Thessalonica, he was severed from that as well. So now he's in Berea, and he's preaching in Berea. Maybe Berea is where... Can you imagine being that person? Maybe the person said, come over to Berea. Maybe that was the vision. He's preaching in Berea. That happens for a little while, and then all of that falls south. Next thing you know, he's kicked out of there. He says he's smuggled out at night, and now he's all by himself. Luke is in Philippi. Silas and Timothy have remained behind in Berea. He's on a boat floating his way to the dark city of Athens that when he preaches the gospel is pretty much going to say, eh, This is Paul. This is his situation here. I think he's lonely. I think he's scared. I know he's scared. Do you know what it says? It says this in... uh, Well, he's lonely. He's afraid. He's worried. I'm I'm certain he's worried. Have these churches... uh, Are they going to survive without him? Are they going to make it without him? 
through the texts of the Bible. He is regularly talking about this. There's a text that he writes in Thessalonica. He says, I was worried whether or not you would be able to withstand. Can you imagine that you've just planted a church for three weeks? You've planted a church. You have to leave. And you're leaving as you know that the hand of satanic oppression and persecution is falling on those people. It's falling on those people, and you're walking away, and in your mind you're going, the chances, what are the chances that they survive in the faith? He says as much in to his church in Thessalonica. He says similar things to the, church in, of, to the letter of Colossians and Galatians, though it's a different missionary journey and a different purpose. You see Paul's heart, his heart of longing for, and his desire to help and assist in these churches that he's not present with. He says, though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. He has this ownership here. There's a sense, I think, that Paul, he has this strong appreciation for two things. The invincibility of the kingdom and the fragility of the church. And he seems to always understand how one can be both so fragile and yet invincible at the same time. And now he's in Corinth. Alone, broke, afraid. This is what it says in the first letter to the Corinthians. This is what he, he, he reminds them of how he came. He says this, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. That's Paul right now. Chapter 18, verse 1, Paul is with weakness and fear and much trembling as he walks into the city of Corinth to preach. Lonely times like this shape us, I believe. They shape us. We're shaped by our experiences. When we have these occasions where we're discouraged and discouraged and discouraged and discouraged and discouraged, I'm not saying that we walk away from the faith. I'm saying that there's this response in us. We just kind of go, Lord, how I'm frail. There's a sense that every Christian is unbelievably fragile and invincible. And we just hammered after hammered of failure after failure of, I thought I was doing what you wanted, but that didn't work. I thought I was doing this, but that didn't work. I thought, and pretty soon it can, it can breed in us a spirit of discouragement. It can make us feel like, am I the only Christian out here? Has is, is, is God failed me? Even though you have faith, you believe what God says, you trust him, you're trying to live right, you're repentant, you're doing all these things, but it's not working, and it affects our spiritual temperature. It happens both ways. You go to a praise and worship rally, and you come home white hot with the Lord, don't you? On the mountaintop, so to speak. You go to a, a, a retreat, a Christian retreat or something, you come back and you're all fired up. It like turns your temperature way up. A winter where you think you're the only Christians in the state of Alaska is lonely. And you believe God, you believe what he says, but you feel hollow and cold inside. I think we felt this. I think there's you. You have felt this. I have felt this. I think Paul feels this. Let's see what happens as the winter turns. I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. 
So he's in Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Priscilla and Aquila show up. He meets Aquila and Priscilla. Now this, this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, they're one of these just diamond couples in the faith. For one, we never ever hear of a conversion story about Aquila and Priscilla. Paul does not lead them to Christ. We don't find that in the text. In fact, in the text of Acts, we find that Aquila and Priscilla experience and enjoy a peer relationship with Paul, not a subordinate relationship with Paul. They're church leaders. Twice in the text of the Bible, we know that there's churches that meet in their homes. When they move to Ephesus, by the way, that's when Paul goes to Ephesus. He goes with Aquila and Priscilla. When they go there, Aquila and Priscilla have a church in their home. When Paul writes the book of Romans... The 16th chapter says, almost first among the greetings, greet Priscilla and Aquila and also the church that meets in their home. There is the sense that they are spiritual leaders like Paul. In fact, when Apollos, when we come into running, running into Apollos in the 20th chapter, I believe, it is Aquila and Priscilla who set Apollos straight, not Paul. There's a kind of an esteem of being a spiritual peer to Paul that, that Aquila and Priscilla enjoy. And it is, we have... Good reason to assume that when they come to Corinth, they are coming as converted Christians already. In other words, they're already in the faith when they meet Paul. The, the Claudius, Claudius, when he puts his edict down, we know from Roman texts, from the Roman histories, that this is what's said, is that what was happening in Rome that caused Claudius to, to kind of make this edict was that there was an uprising within the Jewish church over a man named Crestus. Do the math there. C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, which is almost sounds exactly like C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S, Christos. That the, his, the Roman historian is saying, essentially there was some stirring in the city, in the church, the Jewish synagogue of Rome, over this man named Crestus, and that apparently what it actually sounds more accurately is, is that Claudius said there will be no more active worshipping, Jewish worshipping in the city of Rome. So if you're an active believer, you left. That's what Aquila and Priscilla are a part of, is they're leaving on account of the disruption and commotion over what many believe is the movement of Christ in the city of Rome. In other words, the faith has already reached Rome and is already causing problems. Now, can you imagine being Paul, alone, with great fear and trembling, meek, unsupported, unsure of Silas and Timothy, and you run into Aquila and Priscilla? That, to me, is the coolest thing in the world. And like my romanticizing mind, I'm not saying this is how it is. I'm saying God is allowed to have done it this way. And I think he would get style points. This is what I like to imagine. I like to imagine Paul is in Corinth. And he meets Aquila and Priscilla. And Aquila and Priscilla say to him, we want to talk to you about a man we call Christ, the Messiah. I just think in my heart, that the most, the tenderest mercies of God 
would be the kind of way that someone would bring the word of Christ to Paul. Like, you are not alone. You're not alone. You know, Elijah. Elijah calls fire from the mountain, right? It's obvious that on Mount Carmel that Elijah calls fire down and burns up the altar. There's the whole people of Israel apparently repent. It says everybody stood up and they fell on their knees and they said this, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And they slayed the 400 prophets of Baal and they, and they ran after them and caught them. And Elijah has this great moment of victory, like, you know, like Paul at Troas maybe, this great experience. And then the next thing you know, he hears that there's a word on his, for his head that Jezebel said, cursed Cursed I will be if by this time tomorrow I don't have his head on a platter. And it's like, for, for Elijah, it's like, oh, I thought there was repentance, but all I see is failure. And Elijah says, I'm all alone. I'm all alone. I'm all alone. And he ends up in the mountain of God. And God says, what's wrong, Elijah? And he says, I'm all alone. And the Lord whispers to him, there are 7,000 that have not yet bowed to me. You are not alone. I feel this is what's happening for Paul. Aquila and Priscilla, they come in as, as just friends of the faith next to Paul. And then you, you, you see it expands from there. Let's just read the fifth verse. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to the preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So Aquila and Priscilla show up, and then next thing you know, Paul and Silas and Timothy show up. And not only do they show up physically, but they show up with news, and they show up with a gift. They bring a gift. We know that they bring a gift from, uh, from Philippi. The, the church of Philippi found out where Paul was, and they made a collection. And when they show up, they say, here's some money so that you can preach full time. Do you notice he dedicates himself full time to the preaching of the word? It's because, in a sense, the Church of Philippi has adopted him as their missionary. It's the first foreign mission board. There's that, and then there's news. They bring news. Timothy brings news. And it's so fun to read the first letter of Thessalonians because of this. He brings news to Paul. No, the church in Thessalonia has not failed. It's white hot for the gospel. So imagine that. Imagine Paul's heart. He says, I, I, I grieve to know what's happening there. And Timothy shows up and says, they're awesome. They have become the model church for the region. It says that Thess- the church of Thessalonica, that they're reaching out and they've, that the whole area around them has become influenced by their faith and they're enduring great and mighty persecution. Paul at one point says, I know that you're enduring the persecution even like the, the Christians in Jerusalem. That's varsity level persecution. He says, you're enduring it and to, the, to, your, to credit and to the credit of the Lord and God sees it and God bless you. There's this great affirmation that comes out of it. And so you have Silas and Timothy, and you have this gift of money, and you have the encouragement that the church is alive and well, and the church in Philippi is thriving, and all of this shows up at the same time, right around the same time, with Aquila and Priscilla. This is the tender mercy of God. This is, to me, to read this text and see Silas and Timothy showed up, is to miss what's happened. God is so good in the way he meets us. Let's read a few more verses. Verse 6. 
But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue, went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Now, it should, be, it should come to you as another blessing here of a sign of the Lord just changing from winter to summer for Paul. This idea that the synagogue ruler and his family come to know the Lord. How encouraging is that? In fact, the synagogue ruler is replaced by a man named Sosthenes, who later tries to persecute Paul. We won't read the text today, but it's the remaining text of Corinth. This man, Sosthenes, who kind of gets his comeuppance for causing problems. The book of 1 Corinthians opens with a blessing to Sosthenes, his brother, which makes me feel like the first synagogue ruler came to know Christ and the second synagogue ruler came to know Christ. There is this sense of Paul's experiencing great gospel success in the city of Corinth, unlike maybe what we've seen so far in the past. It's, it's unique. And, and amidst all of this, I, I don't want to pass up uh, this one note. There's a place where we need to kind of connect this encouragement with conviction here. That at one point, Paul says this. Right? He's, a, he's being oppressed and persecuted by the Jews, and he kind of does that. Mount. I can, he's, he's almost, he is in Greece. Almost Italian style, right? I'm out. And he, he leaves the synagogue and he goes in the house right next to it and starts to preach. That's what happens. It's just right there, you know. So he's like, excuse me. So I was saying, and he's in this house preaching and you can imagine how effective and efficient this would be, you know. All the Jews who kind of were weak-spirited, didn't know what to think about Paul, but, you know, they didn't know what to say. Well, now they, they, when they go to synagogue, they can still kind of walk out. Yeah, we're going to Applebee's. And what was that? You know what I mean? It's, it, how convenient. How, just think of the, the logistic convenience of not having to move across town. He's still with the Jewish populace, preaching the word of God to Jews and Gentiles alike, to those who have ears to hear, right in the same place. You can understand why the synagogue rulers might eventually be drawn in, to see this movement of God beside them. It is a movement of God. All of this information coming from Silas and Timothy, the church in Thessalonica is alive, to see the synagogue rulers in Corinth alive, to feel the gift from Philippi. There's all of this this, this encouragement that the church of Jesus Christ is not alone. It is part of a movement of the mighty hand of God. It should be so encouraging to us, even when we're in the winter of our life, to know that God is moving mightily on this earth. You know, right now, it's, it's late night in China. But God's church is not asleep there. There are people right now who are hiking back to their village because they walked for two days to get to church. There's people who are meeting in secrecy and in private and who are committing entire books of the Bible to memory so that they can bring them back to their villages and speak. That's happening right now on this earth because God is so much bigger than this. And in all this, Paul has these words. He says to them, your blood is on your own heads. And it sounds strong in some ways. What he's really saying here, and it is strong, what he's really saying here is he's, he's quoting or alluding to Ezekiel 33. In Ezekiel 33, there is this, this, this word of the Lord that Ezekiel gets. And this is what it sounds like. The word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel and he says, when the sword comes on the city, 
He says, you're a watchman, Ezekiel. You're a watchman on a tower. And you're looking out. And when you see the sword come on the city, if you blow the trumpet and announce the coming of judgment to the city, if you do everything you can to announce the coming of judgment on the city and the city doesn't respond, he says, that's okay. You're righteous and the blood is on their own heads. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's saying the blood is on your own heads. I've done my job. But I do want to stop and pause for a second and say, if you feel like God is distant, if you feel like your spiritual temperature is kind of cool, but it's because you're a lukewarm Christian, the reason is that you're a lukewarm Christian. Like, don't wait. Don't wait for the tender mercies of God to come along and and enable your infantile faith. You see what's happening in the Word? That's not what's happening. God isn't sending Aquila and Priscilla and Silas and Timothy and the gift from Philippi and the news from Thessalonica and the synagogue ruler and his family and the multiple baptisms and all of this and all of this and all of this. And, and to include the legal sanction of Christianity by the governor of Gallio, he's not doing all of that to encourage Paul because Paul's lukewarm. Paul is neck deep in the kingdom of God. He's fully invested in the kingdom of God. And I'm not saying that you have to be a, a full-time foreign missionary, though some of you may be called to be missionaries. I'm not saying that you need to be a full-time pastor or that you need to be on your holy boat everywhere you go. What I'm saying is God sends his tender mercies to people who are regularly leaning and crying and, and weighing into God. That's who God responds to. But sometimes what happens is we, we fail to invest in the kingdom. We use the kingdom like a get-to-heaven, get a get-out-of-hell-free card, or a get-to-heaven-for-free card, or a just-in-case card, or a thing-I-do-on-Sunday card, or a way I compartmentalize my faith card, or something like that. And that kind of coolness, if you feel coolness in the faith because of that kind of coolness, that the Lord is not going to show up, I don't believe, and affirm that with Aquila and Priscilla. I just want to know, is this the winter of your faith? Like, are you a Christian who loves the Lord and believes and is trying to do right? And you're just wondering, where is God in this? Or, is God asking you, are you really a Christian? Can I really use you? What are you willing to give me so that you can share in the movement? Ezekiel 33 ends this way. It says, Ezekiel, if you're a good watchman who blows the trumpet and they don't respond, the blood's on their own heads. It says, but if you, the messenger and watchman, see the sword coming and do not blow your horn, they will perish and I'm going to hold you responsible as well as them. Let's keep reading. Let's look at the ninth verse here. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I have made many people in this city. 
I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Now, it would be wrong of me to say to you, Christian, do not be afraid. No one will harm you. Right? God said this to, to Paul. I mean, I can say we have no cause for fear because of the gospel, but these are words that God brought to Paul. He didn't bring him to him in Philippi when he got harmed, nor did he bring him to Thessalonica. I mean, there's times when if the Lord had shown up, he'd said, Paul, run faster. Right? It's now that he comes to Paul. What I can say is, is I do know what we are called to do. I do know who we are called to be. And I do know that God is ever with us. And then there's this beauty in this whole passage here. It says, because I have many people in this city. And on a, at, a, at a shallow level, or at one level, you can look at this and say, what the Lord is saying is, don't be fearful and preach the gospel because there's people around who will keep you safe. Like, I have my people, and you're okay. That, and I think that's true at some level, that God's sovereign hand works out through the lives of people. But I think what's happening at a deeper level is he's saying, don't be afraid and preach the gospel because I, in my foreknowledge, have many people who are going to come to know me in this city. And I have have you in the city. Now, Paul might have seen the failure in Philippi and the failure in Thessalonica and the failure in Berea and the failure in Athens all the way to this as failure until now where he sees, I've called you to the darkest city in the peninsula. I've called you to the darkest moral sewage hole in the Greco-Roman world because I have many people here who are going to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There is the greatest need here. The physician has arrived to the sick. It's my prayer that we would be faithful to enjoy that, willing to go to dark places and preach bright messages of life and love and of Jesus Christ so people might come. This is what he says. This is what he says when he's writing years later to his church in Corinth. He says this, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking to Corinth. And he says this, And that is what some of you were. But you have been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by his Spirit and our God. God brings us to places so that one day we can say, that is what you once were. But the winter is gone. 